0: A problem in society, and particularly in the church, is our inability to let something go, our failure to move on, our inability to forgive. In my experience within churches, and I think you would agree, is that a lot of problems, a lot of issues, a lot of disagreements, and ultimately the cause of a lot of people leaving A church is often a personal issue. It is a problem with people with a particular personality. Something was said or something was done to one by another and there has been no forgiveness. Someone can't let go and move on and get over whatever was said or done or not said or done. I'm sure we've all been affected by this at one point or another within our lives. Something nasty was directed at us. We were mistreated or let down in some way. Unfortunately, this will happen. Unfortunately, this will happen in the church. And it is vital that we learn how to let go of these types of situations and not to continually dwell on them. For ultimately, these issues will eat us up from the inside out, destroying our lives and the lives of those dear to us. It is this that I wish to consider from the text before us this evening, this issue of letting go. Now, in chapter 5, there are two events recorded And it is the second event that we will focus on the topic this evening. But it is important that we spend time on the first event in order to set the scene for the second. So I need you to remain with me in this first point so we can arrive at the desired destination in dealing with this issue before us this evening. The first event in this text is the courageous coming before the king the courageous coming before the king if we were if we remember from last week Mordecai had challenged Esther to appear before the king to go and plead for the lives of the Jewish people including herself and now that the 3 days of fasting and praying had come to completion Esther keeps her word and she comes before the king and this is recorded in the first eight verses which make up the first event. I've broken this event up under five headings. So let's start with number one, which is the dress of the coming, the dress. We see this in verse one. It says, Now it came to pass on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel if you and I were ever to have the privilege to spend time with our Prime Minister or some other world leader or monarch, we would dress for the occasion, wouldn't we? We wouldn't come before their presence in board shorts, singlets and thongs. And Esther too knew that she could not come before the king in the clothes that she was wearing. Remember, she had this fasting period and she showed great wisdom here and adorning herself in the royal apparel. This royal apparel would include a majestic ball-gown type dress, no doubt with many jewels on it. The royal crown would be worn, and no doubt she applied the sprays and perfumes that she knew the king found irresistible. A dressing like this shows wisdom, because it would enhance her natural beauty, which would mean she would find favour in the sight of the king. And it also shows respect towards the king, that she would go to so much time and effort in preparing herself to come before him. But despite going to this effort, this still didn't eliminate the great risk in her actions. Number two, we see the danger in the coming. The danger... And this is also seen in verse 1. In the phrase, And stood in the inner court of the king's house, over against the king's house, and the king sat upon his royal throne in the royal house, over against the gates of the house. So having prepared herself, she now makes this journey to the king's throne. And one can only imagine what is running through the mind of this young lady at this time. This could be the end of her life. But she shows great courage in appearing before the king. She doesn't back out at the last minute. A text tells us that she stood in the inner courts. The word translated stood has much more meaning in the Hebrew language. It means firstly to stand firm, to persist or to endure. So she stood firmly and boldly in the court and would stand there until the king acknowledged her. She would not back down. This word stood also means to succour, to help or to defend. So this reveals that she stood in interest of saving the Jews. She was standing there to help her people. She confronted this personal danger because of the compassion that she had for her people. But all of this courage and compassion would prove pointless if she did not find favour with the king. How would he respond? Number three, we see the delight in the coming, the delight. This is seen in verses two and three. Verse 2. And it was so, when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court, that she obtained favour in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther drew near and touched the top of the scepter. Then said the king unto her, What wilt thou, queen Esther? And what is thy request? It shall be given thee to the half of the kingdom." As the king lifted up his eyes and saw his beautiful queen arrayed in her fabulous apparel, I wonder what was running through the mind of Esther at this time. No doubt she would have been nervous, probably scared, a sense of anticipation. Would he approve? Would he not? A text states that the king saw Esther and she obtained favour. This seeing is obviously referring to her immense beauty that she possessed and also the respect that she had shown in preparing herself to come before the presence of the king. Upon being delighted to see his queen, he quickly extends his golden scepter to spare her life. But he quickly realised that Esther would not array herself like this and risk her life to come before him for no apparent reason. She wouldn't risk her life just to have idle chit-chat or for a social outing. And it's at this time that Xerxes poses the question, what is it you want? And he declares that he would be willing to give to her half of the kingdom. Now this phrase, half of the kingdom, must be understood as an idiom, as it is in Mark 6.23, He was not going to give her literally half the kingdom. He can only do this a certain amount of times. But this figure of speech denotes that he would be very liberal and generous in granting any requests. Esther must now feel rather relieved. Her life was spared and she had been shown great favour by this grand offer. But what she requests is not what we might expect. So number four, we see the desire in the coming, the desire. See this in verses four and five. Verse four. And Esther answered, If it seem good unto the king, let the king and Haman come this day unto the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, Cause Haman to make haste, that he may do as Esther hath said. So the king and Haman came to the banquet that Esther had prepared. Esther shows great respect and honour towards the king in how she presents her proposition. And she requests that the king and Haman come to a banquet that she had prepared. The inclusion of Haman may seem a little bizarre to you and I. You know, husband, wife and Haman, he was like a third wheel in this situation. But this is not unusual, for the two I see would often tag along with the king to various gatherings. I think there's a rather obvious question here, but why didn't Esther just present the real reason? You know, that being to plead for the life of the Jewish race rather than requesting this banquet. Now, I think there are at least four reasons. So, number one, she wanted the king to be in a more alone and more private setting. We must remember around the throne there would be all the attendants, all the servants. And Esther did not want to come pleading before the king with all these men around, because this would make him look weak if he gave in to her. Number two, she wanted Haman to be present when she informed the king of this news. Number three. The banquet would serve as a softening for the king, get him in a better mood. And we also must remember, if we remember from chapter one, the Persians, when making important decisions, would do it in a state of drunkenness because they thought this would draw them closer to the gods, giving them wisdom. And number four. God wasn't ready for the king to know yet. There was still another event that had to take place in order for the timing to be correct. And that event occurs in chapter 6. We must understand at this time, this is not Esther trying to back out of her duties, but rather it shows great wisdom on her part and that she is trusting God in this situation. Her faith is actually quite great. Look with me in verse 4. It says, A banquet that I have prepared. It was already prepared before she went unto the king. Esther trusted that God was going to work in this situation. Now, what great faith! I wonder, can the same be said about you and me? In hearing this proposition, the king is extremely eager. He's interested, he's excited to come to this banquet. So much so, he tells the servants, go and fetch Haman, tell him to hurry up. There's no time to waste. All of this was coming together, further revealing that God was in control. Now, this proposal was extremely successful. Both the king and Haman rushed to the banquets. We see with number five, the dining after her coming. The dining. We see this in verses 6 through to 8. Verse 6. And the king said unto Esther at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition? And it shall be granted thee. And what is thy request? Even to the half of the kingdom it shall be performed. Then answered Esther and said, My petition and my request is if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleased the king to grant my petition, And to perform my request, let the king and Haman come to the banquet that I shall prepare for them. And I will do tomorrow as the king hath said. Having come to this banquet, the king is fully aware that this is not what Esther truly wants. He poses the question again, what is your petition? What do you really want to ask of me? And he repeats unto her again this idiom that he would give to her half the kingdom. He's in a good mood. He's in a generous mood. And just when we might suspect that Esther would present her proposal to the king and plead for the lives of her people, she asked the king that he and Haman would come to another banquet. This was to occur the following evening and it would be then that she would finally reveal what it was that she truly wants from the king. And we know that the reason for the suggestion of this second banquet was that that very night, the final event was going to occur and everything would be ready for God to work his plan together. Now all of this information serves as an important context for the second event that I wish to focus on this evening. And the second event is the continuous contempt of Haman. And we see this in verses 9 through to 14. So let's read starting at verse 9. Then went Haman forth that day joyful and with a glad heart. For when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gates, that he stood not up, "'nor moved for him. "'He was full of indignation against Mordecai. "'Nevertheless, Haman refrained himself, "'and when he came home, "'he sent and called for his friends "'and Zeresh, his wife. "'And Haman told them of the glory of his riches "'and the multitude of his children "'and all the things wherein the king had promoted him "'and how he had advanced him "'above the princes and servants of the king.' Haman said, Moreover, yea, Esther the queen did not let no man come in with the king unto the banquet that she had prepared but myself. And tomorrow am I invited unto her also with the king. Yet all this availeth me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then said Jeresh his wife and all his friends unto him, Let a gallows be made of fifty cubits high. And tomorrow speak thou unto the king that Mordecai be hanged thereon. Then go thou in merrily with the king unto the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, and he caused the gallows to be made. Haman having just dined so- solo sorry with the king and queen, a very unique privilege, he leaves rather satisfied with a heart full of joy. There was a spring in his step. He thought he was greatly favoured getting to share this meal. Who else would get this honour? This must show how important I am to the king. There was this definite sense of self-achievement. As he made his way out of the banqueting hall to make his journey home, he made his way through the king's gates. And at this time, Mordecai, is back in his position after his mourning experience in the previous chapter. And as Haman, this man filled with much self-importance and pride, made his way through the gates, Mordecai, the Jew, the one he hated passionately, refused to even stand up to acknowledge this man. Before he refused to bow. Now he wouldn't even stand. But not only did he refuse to stand... But this man was not moved for him. In other words, he did not fear or tremble in the presence of Haman. Now, Haman wanted to be treated like a god, and Mordecai refused to bestow this honour on any man, particularly a man of despicable character. Now, upon confronting Mordecai, the happiness of Haman had now evaporated. It was extremely short-lived this disapproval of one man put him in a state of indignation indignation meaning fury hot displeasure and it has the descriptive word full attached to it so this was this hot ferocious anger that completely filled this man and spewed out now what a rapid change in the heart of this man filled with joy to being filled with anger in the moment of seconds. Now this type of excessive anger will lead one to commit wicked deeds. And no doubt many wicked thoughts flooded into the mind of Haman at this particular time. Now, the text tells us that he refrained himself. Refrained meaning to hold oneself back, to compel oneself. Now, It was extremely difficult for Haman to do this. But he refrained himself from dealing with this how he would have desired. And I tend to believe that this refraining is more to do with the hand of God in this situation than it is the character of this man. Haman continues the journey to his residence where he sends for his wife and his friends. This no doubt to discuss and boast what had occurred that day and also to unload the great burden of his life. In verses 11 and 12, we have explained a massive ego trip. Look at how good I am. The excessive pride is there for all to see. And pride always focuses on self. A good way to measure whether we struggle with pride is to evaluate how often we talk about ourselves, what we have done or what we are going to do. Within this prideful boast of how great he was, Haman addresses three areas. His fortune, his family and his fame. Now his fortune, we see this in verse 11, he tells them of the glory of his riches. He explains and boasts as to how rich he was. And we know this is true because of the size of the bribe that he offered to the king. This man, to use a colloquial term, was rolling in it and he wanted everybody to know. But not only his fortune, also his family. In verse 11 also, the multitude of his family. Haman had a rather large family. Esther 9.10 reveals that Haman had ten sons. And the Persians, just like the Jews, thought it was a great blessing to have many children, particularly if they were sons. The Persians regarded having many sons as the greatest proof of one's excellence. And Haman recognized this and boasted at this fact. And he also boasted about his fame. His fame, he reminds his wife and friends, as if they could forget, that he had been promoted by the king to this very prestigious position. In fact, he was second in charge over the entire empire. And Haman also reveals the events that had unfolded on this particular day. No one could imagine his reaction. I am so important that the king and Esther Invited me to a banquet today, just the three of us, and tomorrow I'm going to another one. Haman describes his life in great detail. He has everything money, power, a large family. What more could he possibly want? Yet in verse 13, he declares that all of this avails to nothing, that this is worthless as long as he kept seeing Mordecai at the king's gates. The primary purpose of all of this glorying was to emphasise the prominence in his life of his grievance with Mordecai. Such was his hatred and indignation towards this man. This was consuming his life. He was extremely bitter towards this man. It was eating him from inside out. The wife and friends of Haman understanding that this was consuming this man, offer a suggestion. A suggestion that they think will solve his problem and will enable him to attend the banquet the following day in a state of happiness. They are the masterminds behind this plan. They suggest that a gallows be built 50 cubits high. This is 25 metres. And the term gallows, I think, is referring to a pole for impalement. And the following day, after seeking the king's permission, which they assumed would be no problem, considering Haman's position, that Mordecai could be put to death, alleviating Haman of his great grief, and this would also send panic through the Jews. And upon hearing this proposal, Haman is delighted, and immediately he has the gallows built, ready to be used the following day, which it most certainly would be, but not in the way that he thought. Now Haman was a man who could not let go. He could not deal with his hang-ups. He could not get over the fact that this Jewish man refused to bow down to him. This occupied his every thought. It consumed his life, ultimately destroying his life. Now this inability to let it go, to forgive and move on, is not something particular to Haman only. But this is a real problem for each and every one of us, isn't it? This specific problem is most certainly a very real issue, even in the church, isn't it? In our lives, we will get hurt. We will get mistreated. Nasty things will be said we will feel unappreciated. We may feel used. You know, this is all a reality. And unfortunately, these things even occur in the church. And that is why it is of vital importance that we learn to forgive and move on, to get over our hang-ups. And in order to help us to learn not to hold on to a grudge, Consider with me some consequences of not moving on, of not dealing with our issues and allowing them to remain within and to fester up. Number one, it robs of rejoicing. It robs of rejoicing. In verse 9, Haman was full of joy and upon coming across, Mordecai was quickly filled with anger. His inability to deal with this situation sucked all of the joy out of his life. He was furious when he should have been joyous. And this is the same for you and I. When we can't forgive, it will rob our lives of joy. We will be miserable. It will suck us dry of all happiness. Number two, robs our lives of reality. Of reality. In verses 11 and 12, Haman spells out everything that he has. His fortune, his family and his fame. He has everything in a worldly sense that a man could possibly want. Yet all of this meant nothing because he could not get over the fact that Mordecai refused to bow down. He lost his concept of reality, of how good his life actually was because he harboured this in his heart. And if we fail to let go of situations, we too will lose our perspective of reality. We will not see the good things we have in our life and the good things that happen, but we will focus on the negatives that occur and the negatives in others due to harbouring this hurts. Number three, it robs us of revenge. Of revenge. Now let me explain what I mean. When we hold a grudge against somebody, we tend to think that if we are angry at them and won't forgive them, this in some way will inflict revenge on them for what they have done to us. Our inability to let go is some form of punishments. But this is certainly not the case. Now, Mordecai couldn't care less as to how Haman was reacting, could he? He still refused to bow. In fact, he would not even stand up. And the inability to move on will only ever affect you. It will never affect the one that you were bitter towards. You may think it does, but it doesn't. It doesn't give you any form of revenge. It just destroys the quality of your life and those around you. Number four, it robs of righteousness. It robs of righteousness. Haman ended up planning to have the life of the one that he was bitter towards taken. That is the type of behaviour that not forgiving and moving on produces. Now you may say, I would never murder anyone. You know, perhaps not. But if we harbour this bitterness in our heart, it will lead to hatred. And we know what the Lord teaches on this, don't we? We're not dealing with our hang-ups will lead to anger, will lead to malice, will lead to bitterness, and so on. And that is all sin. It will lead to sin. And that should not be the desire of the child of God. Number five, it robs of relationships. It robs of relationships. Although this one is not found in the text, this is definitely true. When we have it in for somebody... It is those who are closest to us that will be affected the most. Because this is consuming us. We will regularly talk about that, whinge and whine about them. It consumes our thoughts. We are constantly angry. And this will destroy our relationships, whether that be with your spouse, your children, your family, or your friends. Not forgiving and moving on when someone hurts you robs you of all these things. And what does it leave you with? Bitterness, brokenness, bleakness, bareness. These are its fruits. You know, Beloved, we must let it go. Forgive and move on. Now, as believers, we have been forgiven of much, haven't we? Our sins have been forgiven because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We have committed hundreds thousands of acts of gross sin and we have been forgiven, past, present, future, yet we are not willing to forgive? Now, who do we think we are not to be willing to forgive and move on after we ourselves have been forgiven on a much greater scale? Beloved, maybe this evening something has happened in your life. Something was said or done. You feel used, unappreciated, and it hurts you greatly. You know, I'm sorry to hear that. I know it hurts. But we must, in the strength and grace of Jesus Christ, extend the forgiveness that has been bestowed upon us. Forgive and move on. For clinging onto it will do no good. You know, in the words of that terrible Disney movie "Frozen," let it go, let it go. Amen.